Are we working? Yes. As I mentioned before, we are um, beginning the book of 1 Timothy this morning, and um, we will not have a scripture reading till the end of the message, so we're not going to ask you to stand at that time because we're going to read the entire book. It won't take that long. I think you'll find it helpful to to read it together. Um, we are looking at uh, the book of First Timothy. This is indeed an introduction and an overview of this uh, new study of the book of uh, First Timothy. And I want to just give some background on the book and actually the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are called the pastoral epistles. And um, you know what? We need to pray. I'm sorry. I, I forgot that we were going to pray before that. And so when all else fails, nothing is failing, of course, but, uh, but uh, we must always begin by, by looking to the Lord. So would you pray with me, please? God, we do pray for your help as we embark on this study that it will take us some time to get through the books of First and Second Timothy. Thank you, Father, for these men whom you chose at the appropriate time to lay a foundation of faith that is ours now to this day, so many decades later, millennia later. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, a man of faith, a man of courage, a man of strength, a man of rare quality, whom you chose and changed, even as a sinner who was a blasphemer of the church, to lay the foundation through apostolic teaching. And we thank you that in Timothy we see more of ourselves, one who is timid and weak in many ways, and yet in whom the grace of God abounded and you used in incredible ways. So help us to understand these things as we begin our study this morning. And these things we pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. As I was saying, pastoral epistles. There are three books in the New Testament that are called the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And they're written in this, le- in this order, 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. Um, the dates are, you know, if you read scholars, if you read some background things this week in preparation for life groups, and I hope that you will, you'll find some differences in, in dating. That's why there's quite a large range between A.D. 63 and 66. 1 Timothy, the book we're beginning this morning, was written somewhere late A.D. 62 to 66, 63, 66. Written to, Tim, written to Timothy, who was in Ephesus, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. Titus, written about the same time, uh, AD 63 to 66. Titus was on the island of Crete. He was a church planter, and he was, uh, he was in charge of a number of churches and cities, and he was in charge of building the leadership of those churches that they would be fully formed and established. Second Timothy, the last letter of the Apostle Paul. The last of his letters. Second Timothy is a fantastic book. It is Paul's swan song, if you will. It is uh, a book that was written later in his life. In fact, these three books were written. Historical tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded in Rome after being imprisoned a second time. And so shortly after Second Timothy was written, we know that Paul was put to death as a martyr for the faith. 
There's something different about these pastoral epistles. They're called pastoral epistles, not because Timothy and Titus were pastors per se, but that they have to do with shepherding of these churches. The church in Ephesus needed shepherding. It needed help. It had elders and it had deacons, but there was also some problems in the church. And Paul sent Timothy as an apostolic delegate. He was appointed by Paul, by the apostle, to go as a representative and to fix problems. He was to be a fixer. In the same vein, Titus was not a pastor per se. He would, they, these men were not bishops, but they were apostolic representatives who were given the responsibility over a number of churches to help them to grow and to help them to develop. Thus, they are called the pastoral epistles. What else sets them apart is that in addition to the, the letter of Philemon, these are the only books that are addressed to individuals. All the other books, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, these books were all written to churches. Since they were written to churches, they had a different uh, style. They had a different purpose because they were to be read in, in front of the entire congregation. And uh, they included a lot of teaching of theology and basic things like uh, in the book of Romans. They had that long swath of chapters teaching justification by faith, which is so important to us. Ephesians is, an, is like a mini Romans, and it teaches us about soteriology, excuse me, and, and our, our call to faith in Christ, and it teaches about the church. First Corinthians, which we just finished not long ago, teaches us about spiritual gifts and, and uh, sexual propriety and eating meat sacrificed to idols, and all of these were theological things that Paul lined out for the church at large. But these books are different. These are books in which Paul is not teaching these men theology. They knew theology. They were formed in their theology. They were, they were leaders in their own right. And so he was teaching these men to be faithful to theology. He wasn't teaching them any new theology. So they were written to individuals who were apostolic representatives. Now, one of the things I want to just touch on briefly here is that Throughout uh, recent church history, many have said that, well, Paul probably didn't write the, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And the reason they say that is because of the subject matter. It doesn't uh, compare to the same subject matter as First Corinthians or Romans or Ephesians or Philippians, where he talks about salvation by grace through faith, and he talks about the church, etc., in different ways. They say, rightly so, <clears throat> that his vocabulary is different. In fact, people have, uh, have done studies of the pastoral epistles, and, and we won't, I won't bore you with the, the nerdy details, but they have found that there are way, way more new words by the Apostle Paul that he didn't use in any of the other epistles, plus his grammar and his style, his use of imperatives and verbs and infinitives and all these things. You know, these people have studied these things and they said it's way, way different from the other writings of Paul. Therefore, they say, Paul did not write them. But here are two reasons to accept the authorship of the Apostle Paul. Number one is the purpose of the book. 
Paul was not writing to churches to instruct them in theology. He was writing to theologians to encourage them to faithfulness. Plus, these uh, these are books that are written at the last part of his life, and that accounts for some of the stylistic differences. Remember, the other books were written to churches. These books were written to uh, to individuals, and these were Paul's guys, Timothy and Titus. They knew theology, and he was not going to instruct them in further theology because he already knew it. And so, therefore, there, they, there was a different style in addressing these guys. For instance, on Sunday mornings when I speak in church and I look out here and we have some teenagers and we have some children and in any of our services we have our uh, older saints and younger saints and people of all age groups and genders. And when we speak on Sunday mornings, we have to be mindful of our audience and recognizing that we want to be clear in what we're saying so that everybody in the room can understand what we're saying. I'm not saying we put things on the lower shelf. I'm just saying we are clear and we explain things in a way that everyone can understand because we're speaking to the church at large. If I were speaking to a group of pastors, I would speak a lot different. My language, my vocabulary would be a lot different. If I were speaking to a group of scholars defending a theological paper or a book that I had written, my, my grammar and my vocabulary and my style would be different even still. And that's what we have here. Paul has a different audience. Two men who were theologians, who knew everything already, and his purpose is to encourage them. There's one other uh, uh, thing to, to take into mind when we think about the authorship of the pastoral epistles. Paul often used what is called an amanuensis. An amanuensis was like a secretary or a scribe, and he would write uh, that Paul would, would dictate uh, what was to be said, and the amanuensis would write those things down. Oftentimes at the end of those letters, you see Paul would say, I am writing this with my own hand, and he signs the letter. And always he would look back over it and he would say, yep, this is what I meant to say. Yep, this is right. And he would correct any problems because it was written in his hand. It was coming from him. In 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 4, rather, Paul is going to say, and Luke only is with me. Now, who has written a large portion of the New Testament? Luke, a physician. He has quite a different style. And some have postulated that Luke may have been his amanuensis. Luke may have been his scribe. And if that's the case, uh, he had a different style and probably gave Luke a little bit more freedom because Luke was, was an accomplished writer and historian. And he may have given uh, Luke some, some latitude and some freedom to write things down so that when the final product was placed before the Apostle Paul, he would say, yeah, I like the way you put that. Yeah, that's different than I would have said it, but let's stick with that. And Paul puts his hand upon it. So Paul wrote these epistles. There's no reason to doubt it. And he wrote them to Timothy and to Titus. So what is the theme of this book? What is the theme? We've chosen the theme, maintaining the master's plan. Maintaining the master's plan. In other words, it's kind of back to the drawing board. The Lord Jesus Christ had a plan for the church on the drawing board, and he said, this is, he said, this is what you are to build. These churches, 
this church particularly has already been built. It has been in existence for, for quite some time. It has fully developed. It has elders. It has deacons. It has a, a, a full complement of leaders. But they have gotten astray from the master's plan. And Paul is going to call Timothy to restore that. So in the pastoral epistles, the main thing that we see is warnings about false teachers. And so he's telling Timothy, remain faithful in the face of false teaching. In fact, right off the bat, we'll look at verse 3 next week. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. He's reminding him, this is why I left you, Timothy. He's encouraging him to stay faithful, and he will do that throughout the book. Timothy was left in Ephesus to confront strange teachers and false doctrine. And we see this sound doctrine and teaching in chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 2, 4, 6, 13, 16, 5, 17, and 6, 3. The book is peppered. The letter is peppered with these exhortations to watch out for false teaching. It's peppered with confronting false teaching in 1, 3, 6, 19, 4, 1 through 3, 5, 15, 6, 3 through 5, 10, 20 through 21. You can see throughout the book, Paul continually comes back to the subject. Paul, or Timothy, you need to hang in there. You need to complete what I've given to you. You need to watch out for yourself. You need to stand firm. You need to fight the good fight. And he will say these things over and over to him because there is much at stake in these churches. Second of all, part of that is to restore the church to the master's plan. To restore that church to the master's plan. Another key verse is found in chapter, thir- chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he says, I am writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, that is the family of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is to support the truth. And this church has been in disarray because of the false teachers. And Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus to confront these men and restore the master's plan of what the church is supposed to be. The church was in disarray because of corrupt false doctrine. They needed new leaders to be appointed to take the place of defective elders and deacons. In fact, Paul, we're going to see, has already excommunicated a couple of guys from the church. And so Timothy is left to restore the church to the master's original plan. And he's going to address many people in the book. He's going to address men. He's going to address women. He's going to address widows. He's going to address elders. He's going to address deacons. He's going to address slaves and slave owners. And he's going to address Timothy. And we're going to see that he addresses every age group in the church and it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see how he is going to say everybody's involved in the household of God, the pillar of the truth, and this is the way that we are supposed to stay pure in the teachings. So I have a couple of lessons for you just right off the bat here. Number one, there are now more false teachers 
and more corrupt doctrine than at any time in history. There's more now. You might think there was more in the time of Paul. No, 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 no. Everything was new then. The church was new. New Testament theology was just being developed by the apostles. They were warned about false teachers, and they came in right from the very beginning because what is Satan going to do? He knows he was defeated at the cross, and he knows that he wants to disrupt and corrupt the church. And there have been over 2,000 years in which false teaching has arisen because Satan has a plan too. God has his master plan, and Satan has his plan to destroy God's people. And so we have more false teaching now than there ever was before. Why, why do you, people always ask us, and they've asked you as a Christian, well, if Christianity is true, why are there so many different denominations, right? What has happened? I believe that there's a big tent under which the gospel is preached by many, but even today, throughout all of church history, you have groups that have, that have come up that are cults, Christian cults, that have a false Christ, and they have a false way of salvation, and they have a false church, and they have a false righteousness, and that is found even, even in our city. And it's our responsibility, therefore, to make sure that we as Valley Bible Church, a Bible-teaching church, that we proclaim the cross of Christ in right and true and sound doctrine in this community in which we live. It is imperative because there are more false teachers than ever before, and it is our responsibility to hold the line. The next lesson is this. <clears throat> Corrupt doctrine produces unhealthy Christians and unhealthy churches. Now, you might say, well, corrupt doctrine doesn't produce Christians at all. But think about the church in Ephesus. It was full of Christians, but these men have come in, and they're leading even the elect astray so that the church has unhealthy people. Therefore, the church itself is unhealthy. On the other hand, sound teaching and pure, healthy doctrine produces godly Christians in healthy churches. And that is what we want to be. That's what we seek to be. I believe that's what we are as a church. We have sound doctrine. We are producing godly people. And we have a healthy church. And we must be prepared to protect ourselves against those who might come in. And because they will come in and lead us astray. And that is exactly why Timothy was left in Ephesus to restore that church to its proper plan. So let's look at just a basic outline of the book. This is a simple working outline. We're going to flesh it in as we go along. But there's the salutation. There's the greeting in, in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 1. Then we see in the rest of chapter 1 this instruction on the part of Timothy to confront the problem. Then we're going to see from chapter 2 to chapter 6, verse 10, positive instructions to restore the plan, to restore the church. And then we'll see at the end of the book, personal instruction to godliness to Timothy throughout. He's going to say this, but then he's going to end the book by saying, Timothy, you are the linchpin here. You need to stay faithful. You need to stay faithful in personal godliness. And so we'll see these as we go along. So I want us to take just a couple of minutes and look at the first couple of verses. 
In chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the salutation, the greeting, if you will. And it says this in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Very similar to many of Paul's greetings, but a little bit different in some ways. Enough that this is the reason that people say this could not be the Apostle Paul because he didn't talk this way. Well, yes, he did because he did here. But he's first of all, he says, Paul is an apostle by commandment. In the book of Ephesians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And here he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment. Timothy and Paul, by the sovereign plan of God, have been chosen and placed into service just as he does us. And Paul is saying, I, I did not choose, I did not volunteer for this. God tapped me and he gave me the commandment to be a representative. And he's, he's alluding to the fact that, Timothy, you're in the same boat as me because he is an apostolic representative. But he also calls him God, that is, according to the commandment of God our Savior, the pastoral epistles are the only places where we see that phrase and people say, well, that isn't Paul then because Paul didn't use that in various passages. It's very Hebrew. Uh, it's very a very Jewish idea in the Old Testament. Who is the Savior? God, because Christ the Lord had not come. And so God was often spoken of as God our Savior. In the Magnificat, for instance, Mary refers to God our Savior, very Old Testament idea. But remember Timothy's background. He is a, a Jew by birth, half Jew, if you will, and he was raised up in the Jewish faith. And so he is appealing to that with, with, with Timothy, that you know that God is our Savior. And we know now in the New Testament that God our Savior is Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus Christ is whom? He is God. And then he also says, who is our hope? And he's getting across to Timothy right off the bat that you are in a battle. Your only hope is Christ. Your only hope is the word of God. Your only hope is the truth. You cannot stand toe to toe without, with false teachers without Christ our hope. Because he is the one who will return and he is the one who will, will judge the living and the dead and those who are false teachers. So he is our hope. And then he says in verse 2, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul always speaks of Timothy with endearing terms. My true child in faith. He doesn't mean that he is his literal son. When he says he is my child, he is my son in faith, or the faith he is saying he is his spiritual son, his spiritual son. In 2 Timothy 1, 2, he says to Timothy, my beloved son. In 1 Corinthians 4, we looked at that. He said, for this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who was my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In Philippians 2, he says, and you know of his proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. There is no one else in the New Testament that Paul speaks of with this kind of affection and endearing terms, <clears throat> because Timothy was indeed to Paul a spiritual son. 
We know that Paul, that Timothy came to Christ probably when, when Paul first came to Lystra and Ephesus and preached the gospel. And remember, Paul was run out of town on a rail and he was, he was stoned. But the church was planted and many believe that Timothy, as a teenager, came to Christ under the teaching of Apostle Paul. In chapter 16, it says, Paul came also to Derby. this is later on, to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul takes this young man, probably in his early 20s at this point, and he becomes his protege, and he takes him, and he teaches him, and he he forms him in the faith to the extent that now he is an apostolic representative in Ephesus. We do know that Timothy was young, probably at this time in his mid-30s. In chapter 4, he's going to say to Timothy, uh, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example to those who believe. He was timid. In chapter 16 uh, of, of 1 Corinthians, you remember this passage not long ago, he said, Now if Timothy comes, see to it that see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work. As I also am, he was easily intimidated probably because of his youth. But not only that, Timothy did not have a strong constitution. We're going to see in chapter 5 of this book, he will say, No longer drink water exclusively, but a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. We have this picture of Timothy. He's young. He's timid. He's a little bit sickly. And yet he is standing in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the jaws of, the, of the, this lion. He's facing down these false t- teachers with the word of God. He also had, which is very important to us, a heritage of godly women in his life. Godly women. Paul is going to speak to women in, the, in 1 Timothy and in Titus. In 1 Timothy, he's going to tell the women how to properly... Uh, dress themselves with godliness. And he's going to speak to those who have fallen to false teachers. In in Titus, he's going to say, you older women in godliness and kindness, uh, uh, bring up the younger women. Our Titus 2 ministry is built upon that passage in Titus. And in 2 Timothy, he says this uh, uh, of Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.5. He said, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Timothy had this background of godly women in his life. And so we'll see Paul will extol women throughout the pastoral epistles, but he is also going to address men and women who have fallen from the faith. I can tell you that uh, there have been strong godly women in my life that I, I just very briefly, the first is my mother, um, when she was left and I was a teenager, young 12, year, 12 13 years old, um, my mom was a single mom, but she was godly and she was faithful. And in my years of rebellion, I always knew the foundation of my life came from my mother. Otherwise, it could have been much, much worse if it were not for her. When I joined the Navy, there was a woman named Maria, also a single mother, a black female petty officer in the neighbor in the navy and i was a brand new newly minted uh, officer and she was a black single mother 
enlisted woman. She took me under her wing. She taught me what it was like to be a chaplain. She would tell me, chaplain, you shouldn't be doing that. No, sir. She, she, would, she would warn me and she would tell me what to do. And she would do it with grace and in all submissiveness to her to the position that I had as an officer. But I owe my my success and my satisfaction as a chaplain to that woman. And I've reached out to her on Facebook numerous times to thank her for that. The third woman is the one whom I extol uh, oftentimes is my wife, my little prophetess. I call her sometimes for I learn so much from her. And we will see women extolled in the book of 1 Timothy. We will see them extolled, but we'll also see Paul is an equal opportunity confronter. He will confront the men as well as the women who have gotten off track. So, the text. Let's read the text this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, you may want to read along. If you don't have uh, the uh, a New American Standard, you might just want to listen. In fact, you might want to just listen anyway. <clears throat> We're going to read the book of First Timothy. I hope my voice will hold out. It will. And I call you to give attention to the reading of God's word and perhaps to just listen as we read the book of First Timothy. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwrecked in regard to the faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with just braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Eve who was first created, and then, excuse me, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, 
and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the church. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by men's of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocating abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But... She who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, 
he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, and she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may be able to assist those who are widows indeed. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue to sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality, Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and therefore share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins will follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men and depraved mi- men of depraved minds and, uh, and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and clothing and covering with these, we shall be content But those who want to get rich fall into temptation 
in the snare of many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. And God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that as we prepare for this study, that you would feed us and challenge us and protect us. In Jesus' name, amen.